Hello, and welcome to the Notacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 63rd episode of the Notacast entitled Moonlight Sonata, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Catelyn 10, in which Catelyn Stark describes the Battle of the Whispering Wood with such lyrical beauty, you almost forget that a bunch of people are about to fucking die horribly. This is one of my favorite chapters in the series for sure, probably my favorite Catelyn chapter in book one. And yeah, just the the way it's written is is so terrific and and so lovely and unique that uh, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. This is really just the best stretch of material, I think, in A Game of Thrones. This the first book of A Song of Ice and Fire, The Green Fork, Whispering Wood, Miri Mazdur's Blood Magic, Ned's Execution. This is this is just legendary stuff, and I've been excited to do it with you for a while. I've been excited too, man. I'm really happy to be here now in you know the 63rd chapter of A Game of Thrones. And yeah, I agree. This stretch of chapters are really, really good. So much fantastic stuff. So many battles for me to actually talk about. So much of that, you know character and story elements that you like to talk about so much. So it's going to be a lot of fun getting into this chapter. Something for everybody, something for the whole family. We do love being a family podcast, of course. Yes. Do not worry about the E that is for the explicit content warning that is on every single podcast because that's, uh, yeah, you should carry worry about the E being an explicit podcast. We're just explicitly American. <laughs> That's all that means. We're explicitly excited about this chapter, Emmett. I think that's what you're going for. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council on Patreon. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, and finally, the Blue Ringed Octoling. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking potentially about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. We have a couple questions for you this week, both from members of our small council. Sir Keith J., our small council master of ships, asks, Howdy guys, just got a question for you. Since we're getting down to the final stretch of a Game of Thrones chapters, I was just curious if you were planning on a sizable blowout episode to finish out your analysis of the first book. In other words, something similar to other Stump the Chumps Patreon ups. <laughs> And yes, indeed, we were thinking as we got down to the end of book one, we would do an episode for patrons on the book as a whole, maybe answer some questions, revisit the question of what our favorite chapters are, because, of course, every dozen chapters or so, Jeff finds a new favorite chapter in book one, so we got to <laughs> pin him down to the hot seat and see what the real one is. Oh, maybe man. we'll do that. But yeah, for sure, we've had such a great time covering covering this book, even though I think it's both of our least favorite books in the series. It's still a masterpiece in and of itself, still what got us into the series. And we would love to reflect back on it and the great time we've had doing it along with you guys. Agreed. It's like having a medium rare New York strip steak. It's always going to be delicious and amazing as a steak and a book. Is my metaphor getting mixed? Oh, whatever. But I, I think like- He had a medium rare strip steak once and he just hasn't let it go since, folks. I have. I, I can't let it go. I just I just can't. But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to go back and look at where we started at. I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting is that my feeling about this book is more positive after doing this reread podcast. I agree. 
I've been so focused on Feast and Dance especially and the potential for The Winds of Winter that I've kind of left the three earlier books aside a little bit and kind of not overlooked them necessarily, but haven't given them the attention and love that they deserve. So this Not a Cast podcast is an attempt to give A Game of Thrones, Clash, and Storm the love that they absolutely deserve because they are great, fantastic books and as Emmett said, they're masterpieces. So yeah, I'm really excited to do like an actual roundup episode that's going to be only like six or seven hours long. At least, at least. And for sure, I, I have the same uh, framework as you where, you know, Winds is the one coming you want to theorize about. Feast and Dance are the most recent ones and the ones whose reputations need rehabilitating, <laughs> at least for a lot of people. Everyone knows the first three are great. At least most everybody agrees that the, the first three are great. Mm-hmm. So they they don't need as much attention and time. It's like how Crescent says in the prologue to Clash that they need to focus on Stannis because Robert and Renly had things kind of taken care of and Stannis was the one who needed some love. That's kind of how I feel about Feast and Dance. But yeah, coming back through book one, first really long reread of it in a while, it is it is just so tight and unfolds and explodes so beautifully in the last third or so as we've been covering recently. So it'll be great to look back on that. So thank you as always, uh, Sir Keith, for your question and support. Our other question comes from Archmaester June, our small council healer of the Lesser Poxes, who asks, Hello, sirs. I hope your Lesser Poxes are responding well to treatment. Those leeches were my personal favorites. <laughs> I have a question slash musing. Do you think that Ariane Martell's story heretofore is setting her up to eventually be part of Aegon's downfall? Could she eventually end up being a queenmaker after all, that queen being Daenerys? She certainly seems to have strong feelings about female heirs being supplanted by males. Although Aegon would seem to be the rightful heir from a Targaryen POV, she might take part in a ruse and side with Danny. Wouldn't that be neat? <laughs> Thank you for the sterling work. Your podcast is the brightest star in a fairly amazing firmament. Well, what a wonderful and astronomical uh, compliment, Archmaester <laughs> June. Thank you so much for your support and for your question. What do you think about that, Jeff? Where do you see uh, Ariane Martel's direction going in the books? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I want to say that I agree with like three quarters of the premise there in that will Ariane be part of Aegon's downfall? Yes. Could she eventually end up being the queenmaker after all, the queen being Daenerys? Yes. But will she actually side with Daenerys in The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring? I don't think that's likely. And the reason why I don't think that's likely is that Ariane as a character has been set up by George in A Feast for Crows on into A Dance of Dragons and then into her two released Winds of Winter sample chapters to be someone who is quite ambitious, not only ambitious, but also jealous of those who could potentially be in line for greater por- for greater portions of power than she is. So one of the features of her two wins chapters is that she has come to understand her father's planning with regards to Quentin, and she is trying to rationalize to herself having Quentin be the king of Westeros and Daenerys be the queen of Westeros. But at the same time, she has this constant refrain both in her first and second chapter, which is, King Quentin, why did it sound so silly? When I look at the story of Arianne Martell, I see her as being an antagonist to Daenerys Targaryen. But I think it's really important to consider that Arianne Martell is not breaking gender roles simply because she's a Dornish woman and simply because that she is the kind of, quote, feminist character in A Song of Ice and Fire. Rather, and, and she could be a feminist character in A Song of Ice and Fire. That's maybe a little bit too overbroad. But Oh, I think it's both. I think Ariane genuinely believes in the ideal of the woman is important too, as Arya puts <laughs> it in the first book. And that's a huge part of Dornish culture. But she's also being motivated by very personal relationships. As you say, her relationships with the men in her family. 
And I think it's really realistic that we see in her released twins chapters that even though Duran, her father, has assured her, no, honey, I didn't try to disinherit you. I don't love my son Quentin more than you. You were all part of my secret master plan <laughs> that was going to involve you being queen, but that fell apart because Viserys died. So now the plan is for Quentin to be Danny's king consort. Even though Arianne has been technically reassured of that, that doesn't make the emotion go away. That doesn't make the feeling that you're going to be preempted and usurped go away. And that's still clearly present in Arianne. Part of this is because as... Arianne kind of almost explicitly outlines in the Feast for Crows. This is a dance of the dragon's redux where Arianne is Rhaenyra and she's thinking of Quentin as Aegon II and Duran as Viserys and Oberyn as Daemon. And there's a lot of interesting commonalities among those characters that make that work. But yeah, Arianne is primarily motivated by this sense that she's going to be screwed over and her birthright is going to be taken away and that's rooted in character relationships not just ideology in the same way to bring up Stannis for just the second time in this podcast before we (laughs) even get to the synopsis which is just incredible you know obviously he's motivated to take the throne after Robert's death in part because he believes him to be himself to be Robert's legal heir but it's also in, in large part to do with his relationship with both Robert and Renly that's a huge part of what drives him to to claim the throne in his own right and that's a huge part of what's leading Arianne forward so I don't think it's I don't think it's super likely she's going to back Daenerys. I think she's more likely to see young Griff as a vessel to preempt Quentin's potential usurpation of her. That if if Aegon is the rightful heir and if she's attached to Aegon, she's the one actually with power and she's the one that could go to King's Landing to represent the family interests, not Quentin, because Danny isn't going to be the heir. Tragedy and irony there, of course, is that Quentin, A, is dead. (laughs) So he's not coming to claim anything. And B, he never wanted part in any of this and is actually much more shy and introverted than Ariane seems to realize and just wanted to go home pretty much as soon as his quest started. So there's a great recipe, I think, for tragedy there. One of the huge components of tragedy is just misinformation, like someone not knowing something else about someone else just, you know, it's too late before they realize the truth. Like you see that all the time with great Shakespearean and Greek tragedies. And I think that's going to be part of it here where Ariane is driven by sympathetic reasons to team up with Young Griff to preempt something that she thinks is coming but actually isn't from Quentin. And what actually comes is Daenerys in full fire and blood mode to take down Young Griff the Usurper. And she unfortunately takes down Ariana in the process. That's that's my guess as to what happens. I'm with you 100% there. And I do think that there's a little bit of additional groundwork for George there where you have Ariane realizing in The Winds of Winter after being kind of let in on Doran's plan that – you know, she was supposed to be the queen in the first place, right? Because yep. she was supposed to be matched with Viserys Targaryen. So she was going to be the queen of Westeros. And now she's being relegated to a supplemental role in being the princess of Dorne. Well, look, Ari- like I said before, and like Abbott said, Arianne is very ambitious as a character and for good and bad reasons, as are most characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, motivated by both good and bad reasons. So Arianne's Ambition might extend beyond the Princess of Dorne now that she has the potential eye on the prize of being of, of knowing that she was supposed to be the Queen of Westeros back when Viserys was still alive. So Aegon might be that means by, by which she becomes the Queen of Westeros again. And I can't imagine a scenario where she doesn't at least try to seize that. And I think it's more of a probability than anything else. And having Daenerys Targaryen show up would supplant her role as the Queen of Westeros. So I can imagine in, – in my heart of hearts, I can imagine – Ariane starting to project Quentin onto Daenerys, which would be like a really sad and tragic moment because Quentin is dead. So he's not posing any actual threats there. So Ariane needs a new threat. And that threat, of course, is the actual Queen of Westeros in the form of Daenerys Targaryen. So sad, tragic, that is Dorne in a nutshell. Yeah, you make perfect points. And there's that line Ariane has in her wins chapters about how 
She wonders why Daenerys stood by and watched Viserys die, and thinks to herself maybe because she knew when Viserys was king she'd just be, like, sleeping with some horse lord for the rest of her life, and the projection is so strong. Like, Aran, you're talking about you and Quentin. That's what this is. That's what this relationship reminds you of. And she says, oh, I really want my brother back. And Damon Sand, her protector, who knows her really well, says, yeah, sure you do, princess. <laughs> I know you better than that. You really still resent that guy. And yeah, like, you know, you point out that the tragedy is kind of Dorne's thing, and they're, they're kind of the mirrors of the Starks in that way, from the north and the south. And whenever either of them goes to the middle, to King's Landing, terrible stuff happens. You know, Elia, Oberyn, and now Ariane. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to kind of summarize this question and responses to it. So thank you to our two people who asked the question, Sir Keith Jay, our small council master of ships, and Archmaester June, our healer of the lesser poxes. And you guys have been our small council patrons now for a number of months, and we really appreciate your support. If you guys are interested in learning more about our Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOAF, where you can find out where you can get our 14 bonus episodes, show notes, early access to episodes, and special Patreon only posts. So we appreciate everyone's support. As we said in the Game of Thrones episode analysis and review, we have recently surpassed 800 patrons there. So we really appreciate everybody who has been supporting us and it means a lot to us. So thank you all very, very much from the bottom of both our hearts. Jeff definitely speaks for both of us there. And yeah, if you want to ask questions like that at the beginning of the episode, go to patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-I-F. For $10 or up a month, you can ask us a questions and force us to answer in the episode. So pick any one of the myriad things that will embarrass Jeff and delight me, because those are, of course, my favorite kind of questions. I, I think what Emmett meant to say is that you want to pick the questions that are like very like military oriented so that... I can like talk for like 45 minutes and Emmett can put in, well, we need to really consider the character and the story that's actually going into like the military shit that you're talking about. Like, God, does it always have to be warship with you, Jeff? Jeff, what's the best kind of bald eagle? I'll just, <laughs> I'll, just I'll just sit back and let him go. <laughs> I really hope we get a question about bald eagles after this one. I'm going to have to do some ornithological research, my friend. Uh, it's already in my heart before it gets into my head. <laughs> Good answer. Oh, man. So, um... This chapter, fantastic, wonderful, amazing chapter, and I cannot wait to get into the synopsis and the Battle of the Whispering Wood, and oh man, it's just going to be so good. So here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 10. The woods were full of whispers. Moonlight winked on the tumbling waters of the stream below as it wound its rocky way along the floor of the valley. Beneath the trees, warhorses wickered softly and pawed at the moist, leafy ground while men made nervous jests in hushed voices. Now and again, she heard the chink of spears, the faint metallic slither of chain mail, but even those sounds were muffled. Now, George sometimes gets this accusation that he writes mid or even lowbrow fiction, and that kind of accusation gets lobbed at him a fair amount, but the opening lines for Game of Thrones' Catelyn Ted should safely dispel this falsehood, because this is quite highbrow stuff, if I do say so myself. Catelyn Stark sits atop a horse with Hollis Mullen, the new Winterfell captain of guards, and her 30 protectors. Rob and Catelyn had previously argued on the number of guards. Rob wanted 50, Catelyn wanted 10. They settled on 30, both unhappy with the outcome. Catelyn is waiting, waiting for the battle to come. It will come when it comes, Catelyn told Hollis Mullen. When it comes, she knew it would mean death. Hollis' death, perhaps, or hers, or Rob's. No one was safe. No life was certain. 
And this was an emotion that Catelyn was very familiar with as she had experienced it so many times before. She had waited for her father, Hoster, who had always told her to watch for me, little cat, before riding off on his southern ambitions ventures. And though Hoster hadn't always returned at the times that he promised that he would, Catelyn would wait high atop River Run, and then she would catch a glimpse of her father or his, her father's banners, and she'd run to him, and Hoster would always ask, did you watch for me, little cat? The same had happened when Brandon Stark had asked her to wait for him, when he went off to King's Landing to call on Rhaegar to die. I shall not be long, my lady, Brandon had vowed, like the literary trope of character about to die, that he was. But Brandon hadn't returned to wed Catelyn. Ned Stark had stood in his place in the Sept at River Run. And Ned had only been able to stay for a fortnight before he rode for Rhaegar and the Trident. He had made promises. It really seems like that's a thing with Ned, doesn't it? Him always making promises to her that he'd return. But at the very least, Ned had left her pregnant with Rob. She had brought him forth in blood and pain, not knowing whether Ned would ever see him, her son. He had been so small. And now Catelyn waits again, but this time it's for her baby boy and his potential killer, Sir Jamie of House Lannister. Brendan Tully counseled Rob that Jamie had never learned to wait. They would use the Kingslayer's impatience to lure him into a trap. Their lives would be the stake that they would bet on. But despite the danger, Rob never showed signs of fear. He provided words of comfort to some men, joked with other bro soldiers, and helped and helped another settle his horse. And because he was a hero and helmets are hardly, hardly heroic, he wore no helm, save his tully auburn hair to protect his head. Let him grow taller, Catelyn asked the gods. Let him know sixteen and twenty and fifty. Let him grow as tall as his father and hold his own son in his arms. Please, please, please. But where Rob had once been a baby that Catelyn held, now he was a young man with a beard and a direwolf. Someone on Twitter asked if I was a parent before I read A Song of Ice and Fire, and, and I wasn't the first time. So after reading Catelyn's chapters and feeling the fear vading Catelyn's thoughts and what she's thinking about Rob and what she's thinking about for her children, it really makes Catelyn's emotions come to life for me now more than ever. So it's really good writing on George's part. But the woods were still only full of whispers now. Jamie hadn't come yet. Was Brennan wrong about what Jamie would do? Did the Kingslayer know that Rob and his army was nearby? According to Brendan, no. All birds that might have carried news to Jamie had been shot out of the sky, and the few outriders that Jamie had put out were all now dead. Rob asked Brendan how large his army is. Well, it's well, Jamie Rob asked Brendan how large Jamie's army is. Well, it's about 12,000 infantry arrayed around in, around River Run in three separate camps, and that was really the only way to besiege the castle. And Jamie had an additional two to 3,000 additional cavalry with him. Well, those odds aren't good, Gobbert Glover puts in. Jamie has the Northmen at a numerical disadvantage of three to one. True enough, Sir Brendan said. Yet there is one thing Sir Jamie lacks. Yes, Rob asked. Patience. <sighs> Love it. The Northern Army was larger than when it had rode west from the Twins, though. The Mousers had joined with Rob, and the survivors from Edbeer's army had flowed into Rob's army, too. And the army had come fast to run, fast to Jamie. And now they knew that battle was at hand. Rob Stark mounts his horse, aided by a squire, Oliver Frey, who Catelyn neatly describes as two years older than Rob, but ten years younger and more anxious. I really love that. That's really good writing. Oliver straps Rob's shield into place and finally hands him his helmet. Hey, I guess heroes do wear helmets after all, TV Tropes page. I read your website about that. When Rob lowered the helmet over the face Catelyn loved so well, a tall young knight sat on his gray stallion where her son had been. Rob tells Catelyn that he's going to troop the line as Ned would, and Catelyn tells Rob to go and let them see you. Rob says that it will give the men courage, and Catelyn wonders, who will give me courage, though? 
but she doesn't give voice to that thought aloud. Rob turns his horse about and trots away with Greywind, a direwolf who is important, I should say, along with this newly formed battle guard in tow. And who are the men in this battle guard? Well, they're the sons of great lords and noble houses from the north and riverlands alike. Patrick of House Malister, Smalljun of House Umber, Theon of House Greyjoy, Five Freys, Sir Wendell of House Manderley, Robin of House Flint, and Torrin Eddard Karstark and Darren Hornwood of House Redshirt. Additionally, Daisy Mormont is there too. And who is Daisy? Well, she's a six-foot-tall woman who was given a morning star at an early age. And the bros got some real concerns about her. See, it's it's not about her as a woman. It's about ethics and warfighting, but not to Catelyn. This is not about the honor of your houses. This is about keeping my son alive and whole. But would 29 dudes and one dudette be enough? Would the entirety of Rob's army be enough? Well, no need for those thoughts because a bird sounds in the distance and Catelyn knows that it means that Jamie is coming. The woods grow still around everyone and she can hear them off in the distance. Horses, swords rattling, spears, armor. Human voices, laughter, curses. The sounds grow louder and louder. More laughs. A command is shouted. The men cross and recross the stream. And then Catelyn sees him. Sir Jamie Lannister, shaded silver by moonlight. Not wearing a helmet because, uh, I, I guess... Anti-heroes don't always wear helmets, uh, whatever. Catelyn flashes back to Sir Brendan, promising that Jamie wasn't one to sit around in his tent while his engineers built siege towers. Besides, he'd already ridden out a few other times since the siege had started. Rob had studied the map that Uncle Brendan had laid before him, and Ned had taught him how to read a map. Read him here, Rob said, pointing at the spot. A few hundred men, no more. Tully Banners, when he comes after you, we will be waiting. And I really can't help but read the kind of lovely description of Catelyn as what she's seeing as the battle's about to begin. Here was a hush in the night, moonlight in shadows, a thick carpet of dead leaves, underfoot, densely wooded ridges sloping gently down to a stream bed, the underbrush thinning as the ground fell away. Then we flash back to the present, with Rob looking back at Catelyn one last time, lifting the sword in salute. Then Mage Mormont's warhorn sounds across the valley from the east, signaling that all of Jamie's men were now within the zone of engagement. Greywind howls, sending a chill through Catelyn at how terrible yet musical that sound is. So this is what Catelyn so this is what death sounds like, Catelyn thinks. And then the battle of the Whispering Wood commences. Another horn sounds from the far ridge as Great John Aubrey sounds his own horn. Then Malisters and Freys, trumpets sound vengeance. And finally, Lord Karstark's war horn sounds. And in the stream below, the Lannister men shout and their horses rear. And I, I just can't help but want to quote the whole thing because it's really, really good. But I need to kind of speak this next paragraph at least in full or I'll hate myself more than usual. The whispering wood let out its breath all at once as the bowmen Rob had hidden in the branches of the trees let fly their arrows, and the night erupted with the screams of men and horses. All around her, the riders raised their lances, and the dirt and leaves that had buried the cruel bright points fell away to reveal the gleam of sharpened steel. Winterfell! She heard Rob shout as the arrows sighed again. Whew, so magnificent. It's so good. And it was nice of Hashtag Team Stark to give Jamie some surround sound entertainment before handing his ass to him. I think that's, it's, it's such a compassionate move on the Stark side. Catelyn sits still atop her horse with a guard nearby, and a few moments later, they're the only ones in the spot as the horsemen plunge forward into the darkness. Lady did only one thing wrong in her entire life, watches as the umbers move down a long, endless line from the hilltop, and damn, just, I'm sorry, Emmett, I just got to read it again. All Catelyn saw was the moonlight on the points of their lances, as if a thousand will-o'-wisps were coming down the ridge, wreathed in silver flame. But then Catelyn blinks, and she sees only men rushing down the hill, to kill or die. 
And then the battle blurs into a cacophony of echoing war sounds, cracking lances, the clang of swords, men calling out Lannister, Winterfell, Tully, River Run. Catelyn closes her eyes and the battle comes to life even more. Hoofbeats, iron boots splashing in the water, swords connecting with oaken shields, steel on steel, screaming horses, dying men. And once she heard Rob shouting, to me, to me. But the shouts of battle begin to die as the red dawn rises. Rob returns to Catelyn atop a different horse, his stark shield hacked to pieces, but Rob seemingly unhurt. But when Rob gets closer, Catelyn sees blood on the sleeve of his surcoat, and she thinks him wounded. But no, it's not his blood. It's Torrin Karstark's blood, or someone else's blood. A gaggle of troops led by Theon and the great John come up the slope after Rob, bringing a captive Jamie Lannister between them. The men throw Jamie in front of Catelyn. Lady Stark, I would offer you my sword, but I seem to have mislaid it. It is not your sword I want, sir. Give me my father and my brother Edbeer. Give me my daughters. Give me my lord husband. I have mislaid them as well, I fear, Jamie responds. Theon tells Rob to kill Jamie, but Rob ain't about that. They need Jamie alive, and besides, Ned would never murder prisoners after the battle. Catelyn orders Jamie to be bound in irons and placed under guard. Rob agrees, adding in that Rickard Karstark is going to want Jamie dead, especially since he killed Torin and Eddard Karstark. Jamie also killed Darren Hordenwood too. Sure hope that Darren's death in this battle, coupled with his father's death in the preceding Tyrion chapter, won't have any long-term negative consequences on the North come a clash of kings. Oh God. And Rob helpfully puts in that Jamie mislaid his sword in Eddard Karstark's neck. He was shouting for me. If they hadn't tried to stop him, I should then be mourning in place of Lord Karstark, Catelyn said. Your men did what they were sworn to do, Rob. They died protecting their liege lord. Grieve for them. Honor them for their valor. But not now. You have no time for grief. Catelyn tells Rob that they've removed the commander of the Lannister army, but the rest of it is still encamped around River Run. Theon starts bragging about how awesome of a battle it was and how it was this great victory and how it was the greatest victory since the Field of Fire. And bros, didn't we kill so many of them? And Lord Tywin, Catelyn interrupts, have you perchance taken Lord Tywin, Theon? This shuts Theon up finally. God, shut the fuck up, Theon. If they don't have Tywin Lannister, then the war isn't won. They have victory in this one battle, but the great war is about to begin. Rob Stark looks at Catelyn and tells everyone that Catelyn's right. They still have River Run ahead. And that is a Game of Thrones Catelyn 10. And just, God damn it, Emmett, how is George able to get away with this? I mean, he writes two battle chapters back to back, but they're both, both, how is this possible? Outstanding in different and unique ways. How? How does he do it? Yes, I love the experience of reading The Green Fork and The Whispering Wood back to back. Always have. In part, it's just thrilling to have the two large-scale battle scenes in A Game of Thrones together, so it feels like one big set piece kind of just swooping together. In part, it's how well they fit together in the clockwork mechanism of the plot, with the Whispering Wood providing immediate payoff for the punchline of the Green Fork, where it turns out Rob's not there. As you see that uh, very wonderfully done in the in the show, in, in Season 1, Episode 9, Baylor, where uh, after the Green Fork, Tyrion learns that Rob is off somewhere with his other 18,000 men, and he just says, and where are they? And then you cut to Rob's victory at the Whispering Wood, so those, those two just knit together wonderfully. But this time through, what I really loved was the different perspectives they represent in terms of how to write a battle scene. As you say, they're both outstanding, but both so different. Like, the Green Fork feels like someone setting up a risk board. You know, it feels appropriately very kind of fussy and ordered and managerial. Here are your marching orders, everybody. Forming nice, nice, neat formations for the audience to see. They've paid hard-earned American money to see you today. And, 
And then the Whispering Wood is where you go, oh, right, hippie author. Because it's all about how you got to just listen to the battle, man. You got to go with the flow and stop being so uptight about formations or what's happening. Just just soak it all in and relate it to your life. Just take this joint, Catelyn, and look at the trees <laughs> and think about life. Rob's got this. To be clear, I love them both. And, of course, the Green Fork has lovely imagery, as we talked about last week. And the Whispering Wood has sound strategies. You're going to talk about a bunch this <laughs> week. But... The Whispering Wood is really nearer and dearer to my heart, almost entirely on the strength of the prose, as you were suggesting throughout your synopsis. The natural imagery, the slowly building suspense, the way it shifts between past and present on a dime just to create the most beautiful moments possible in between. I mean, this episode is called uh, Moonlight Sonata after the Beethoven, not not out of pretension or <laughs> not only out of pretension anyway. <laughs> But because Catalan 10 really feels musical to me, the way it's written, the way it flows. The other title I had in mind for this was uh, In a Silent Way after the Miles Davis album. And that one is is kind of a transitional album in his career between the more kind of like perfect, rigid jazz structures of his earlier albums and the more experimental, free-floating stuff he did later on. It's just a masterpiece of mood. It doesn't have the tightest structure. It's not the green fork in terms of everything being in its right place, but... It's just, it's got such an ambience and atmosphere. It's like the sonic equivalent of watching a, a candle slowly, lazily burn itself out as the smoke curls and thickens above it. And this is the literary equivalent of that, where just the, the, the mood comes through so strongly. And I'll never forget the first time reading it. And every time I love just coming back to it. Oh, so beautifully said, man. I, I always appreciate it. I mean, I, I really enjoyed last week when we did, we switched our roles up here, but I really enjoy after finishing talking the synopsis, hearing you, um, kind of introduce this chapter in a way that really kind of speaks to me. It's it's musical and lyrical and poetic in its own right. So kudos to you as always for every week for, for doing this, most weeks besides last week for doing that. So Well, you always do such a great job with the synopsis. I get excited to talk about the chapter all over again as you get towards the end. So we we fit together like like the Green Fork and the Whispering yeah, Woods, sir. We, I think we fit together so well. But but yeah, this this chapter as I was uh, saying before we recorded, it just feels very kind of classy and contemplative in a way that I don't I don't necessarily associate with a lot of battles in genre fiction, yeah. which isn't a criticism. I mean, you don't, certainly don't have to write every battle this way, but it's just it's written in such a unique fashion. There's such elegance to it, which, as you were pointing out, with some ways it's written, like um, the the bit about Olivar Frey being two years older than Rob and ten years younger at the same time is just such a wonderfully fluid way to express his character or the the, the image of the Whispering Wood letting out all its breath at once. With the arrows, like, mm. like you can see Martin just like, how can I get this across in the fewest number of words? I want to just like, I want to describe this perfectly, but not be too overblown or too florid. Because this chapter is short compared to the Green Fork one, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure. It's half the length, according to Audible, because again, I don't read, LOL. But I agree, like, it's so different in tone than the Green Fork chapter, than Tyrion 8. But I, but I love it all the same. And I remember the first time when I read A Game of Thrones, when I got to the Battle of the Green Fork and then immediately transitioned to the Battle of the Whispering Wood, I was kind of blown away because I had only seen season one, episode nine, Baylor. So I, I knew that these were events that happened, but I assume it would flow out from a similar place where Tyrion would be knocked out of the battle and we would pick up with Rob at the very end of the Battle of the Whispering Wood where they tossed Jamie Lannister in front of Catelyn Stark. To actually get these two chapters was really so amazing for me as a as someone who is enjoying a game of thrones and enjoying like reading the books for the first time i'm not bored by it i mean i, I feel like a lot of authors lesser authors than george probably myself included a little bit tend to write the kind of the same sort of battle scene like over and over and over again where it's the same sort of like in this happened and then this happened and then this happened which is what we saw in the green fort that's not bad but it does get a little bit redundant. So when George comes back and has the perspective of Catelyn Stark and 
you know, basically the perspective of grown-up Sansa, right? The person who grew up listening to songs and poetry and is glomming onto that sort of mentality. It's really cool because you're seeing the battle from a completely different perspective and one that is just so amazing. And I think there's no better way to kind of encapsulate that than the opening words to this chapter. I love what you were saying about the Green Fork kind of being this this benchmark for fantasy battles, and that's the way they're often written. And I feel that's kind of what Martin was doing. He was laying out the sentence like, here, I can do this better than better than most people, and then I'm going to take it this extra other step, this more abstract way. And yeah, this he immediately sets up this stylistic switch. He's, he's grounding us in sonic and visual cues as the chapter starts. You, you read those beautiful opening lines in your synopsis. The woods were full of whispers. Moonlight winked on the tumbling waters of the stream below as it wound its rocky way along the floor of the valley. Beneath the trees, warhorses wickered softly and pawed at the moist, leafy ground while men made nervous jests in hushed voices. Now and again, she heard the chink of spears, the faint metallic slither of chainmail, but even those sounds were muffled. <laughs> now, you had fluid and vivid language in Tyrion 8, the sentence that gave us the title for that episode about Tywin's being an army being an iron rose that unfolded thorns gleaming. But that was all about acquainting us with the battlefield itself and all the moving parts on it. And the Whispering Wood is different because it's about pretty much everything except the battlefield because we don't actually get to see that and only only get hints as to how it's unfolding. I think that's really interesting in a couple of ways, starting with the framing of Catelyn as King Arthur's mom. Hmm. As we've talked about before, that's how kind of George described his project with Catelyn's POV, that that's the perspective on Rob and his campaign that he wanted to show. And he built Catelyn as, as a character around that. And so Catelyn's perspective is liminal. She's aware of the strategy. She's in the room when it's decided. And she knows enough to comprehend it. And she makes her own moves where she can, as with giving Rob his wolf's guard, which, you know, nicely foreshadows that he's going to be king soon because he already has his own king's guard ready to go. But she herself is always on the threshold of action. She's watching Rob do the thing with equal parts hope and fear, and there's a, a certain amount of powerlessness to it. And there is, of course, a gender aspect of this dynamic, and that's you can see George highlighting that with the presence of Daisy Mormont among Rob's guard, which provokes some you know grumbling among <laughs> the more reactionary lords. Just like how when Catelyn you know proposes a peace at River Run. Uh, in her next chapter, some of the responses are rational, but some of the responses are stuff like, you're the gentler sex, you don't understand the need for vengeance. <laughs> so yeah, there's always that kind of aspect to the Northern Lords that she has to deal with. So, I mean, obviously, Catelyn is not exactly waving a tearful goodbye with a kerchief at the doorstep <laughs> while the menfolk march off to war. It's not that kind of fantasy story. But I think part of what makes it interesting is she often has to stop just short of the actual arena of power and watch helplessly as things spin out of control. Like that's what happens in book two with Stannis and Renly, where she can't make them get along and has to watch as one kills the other. And that happens, of course, at a gigantic scale at the Red Wedding when she sees just like the, the bedrock foundational rules on which her class functions just torn to pieces along with her son and his army. All of that, I think, is a really interesting contrast with Tyrion at the Green Fork because he is not privy to the true strategy. He gets lied to about what they're doing. <laughs> And, of course, he doesn't enjoy nearly as warm a parent-child relationship with Tywin the way Catelyn does with Rob. But despite that, and despite being looked down on for his stature, he gets to directly take part in the battle, and she does not. You have this position she's in, and she feels kind of helpless about it, but one detail I like is that even as Cat fears for Rob's life in this chapter, she finds this kind of zen attitude in her inability to change fate. And it ties into that laid-back mood I was talking about. She has that line, it will come when it comes, Catelyn told him. When it came, she knew it would mean death. <laughs> Hal's death, perhaps, or hers, or Rob's. No one was safe. No life was certain. And if you take no one was safe and no life was certain in isolation, it sounds like very sad and depressing, which it is. 
But then what she says next is, Catelyn was content to wait, to listen to the whispers in the woods and the faint music of the brook, to feel the warm wind in her hair. So it's not really a depressing statement. It's her realizing, oh, that's how life works. I'm just, I'm just going to enjoy it. I mean, for once, for once, Catelyn Tully Stark is living in the moment, mm. surrounded on all sides by death, where so often she lives in the past or the future, you know? What Catelyn is saying reminds me so strongly of one of my favorite movies, which is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where, spoilers, skip ahead like 20 seconds or so, at the very end of the movie, where he's at his final memory of the woman that he is attempting to erase, and they're at the beginning of their romance – and he's just sitting at the pier or sitting at the beach, just being there. And Clementine comes up to Joel, who's sitting at the beach. And she's like, you know, it's the end, right? And he's like, I know. It's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to enjoy it. Like, I think that's a really moving moment in the movie. And I think it's a really moving moment here in Catelyn's chapter where she – it could be the end for Catelyn Stark. As she says, like, death could be coming for her, for Hall, for Hollis Mullen, for Rob. But there's nothing she can really do about it. The die has been thrown as, been, as what is said in Catelyn 9 when she, they cross the twins and cross the Green Fork and get on into the Riverlands itself. She's made her peace with whatever is going to happen. I think that's a really telling and moving portion of Catelyn's chapter. And I, and I do love one of the things that George is doing here and that we see the pattern where George is intentionally paralleling Tyrion and Catelyn's chapters, at least the past, the past three chapters and on into this fourth chapter, where we have Tyrion and his relationship with Tywin in Tyrion 7, which is just a terrible relationship. Then we contrast that with Rob and Catelyn's relationship, which is much more tender, where Catelyn is attempting to guide Robin in a way that doesn't hurt his feelings and allows him to kind of boost his self-confidence. Then we get here, we get Tywin being in a command role at the Battle of the Green Fork, attempting to get his son killed and not telling him the plan, as you rightfully pointed out. But then we get Catelyn Stark, who knows the full plan and has accepted it, and their relationship is one that's really interesting. You know, Rob, even at the cusp of battle, is still looking for his mother's approval and saying, is this the right move that I need to make? Should I go see the men? That's what, that's what Ned would do. And she's like, yes, go to go to these men. And she like keeps her own fears kind of under wraps. So I think like though you're pointing out the parallels and the contrast between the two chapters, but I also think that the, the same, the mother-son, father, father-son dynamic is really at play here between the two Tyrion and Catelyn chapters. And I really, really love that. Yeah, I love that parallel you're pointing out between those two chapters. And of course, as we were saying in Tyrion 7, one of the big problems with the Tyrion-Tywin relationship is that neither of them are actually in the moment talking to each other as human beings. They're stuck in the past with, with Joanna and with Tysha, and they're just deal, just locked in that moment, and they can't move forward. And that is, you know, what Catelyn is trying to avoid in this moment, and trying to be present and trying to be aware. And I love the, the details that what really calms her is this, the sound of the water and the feel of the mm. wind. And that, for me, I feel like that implicitly reminds her of River Run, because that's Catelyn always has these really rich, strong sense memories of like the River Run Godswood and playing there when she was a kid. I talked about there being a couple big takeaways from how Martin frames this chapter, and one has to do with, with Catelyn as a character, but my other big takeaway from The Whispering Wood has to do with nature, because it's such a constant presence in Catelyn 10. You've got the imagery and all the sounds and the association of the forest with Rob's army, like when... Catelyn hears the, the bird signals that are clearly from Rob's troops, mm -hmm. but it's, it's just a way of making the, making the soldiers themselves feel like they're part of the forest and part of the wood, which of course is how it feels if you're Jamie's soldiers who are suddenly being attacked. It feels like the wood itself has come to life around you and is descending on you, and it's just it's a great way of setting that up. But it, it's more than gorgeous background detail. It is that, but it's also George's way of putting the life and death struggles of men in the context of the natural world. 
Because the natural world is just going to keep right on going, regardless whether it's Stark or Lannister who wins the day here. Like, you know, the, the, the trees and the owls and the grass don't care which side wins this. And Rob and Catelyn pass back through the Whispering Wood on their way to their grisly fate at the Red Wedding. And by then, nature has reclaimed the battle's remains. Like, Catelyn sees, like, the vines and the, and the grass growing over, like, the skulls and the remains of the horses that fought at this battle. You know, you're comparing it wonderfully to Eternal Sunshine, and I feel like another equivalent of this is uh, Terrence Malick's movies, which are often always about the contrast of human struggles and the grand cycles of nature, which which just keeps on going. And I was thinking about the he made, of course, the greatest war movie of all time, The Thin Red Line. <laughs> Do not at me. And there's this great moment in which uh, one of the American soldiers is sees a, a body of a Japanese soldier as, as the earth is swallowing him up and imagines, hallucinates the, the dead soldier speaking to him. Who's, and he says, are you righteous, kind? Does your confidence lie in this? Are you loved by all? Know that I was too. Do you imagine your sufferings will be less because you loved goodness, truth? <laughs> and that feels very a song of ice and fire to me in which that... You see this, this strong belief in these characters sticking up for their values, but also them dealing with the sense that that's not going to save them and that the rules aren't going to help them out, which, of course, is, is so relevant to Catelyn's story and to Rob's story. And I think that's that's what you get when you kind of set these battle scenes against nature. You get the sense of this this huge context and this huge cycle that they're taking part in. But the, those those aesthetics, those, those those bits of poetry, they exist not only for their own sake, but also just for making the strategy more visceral, more exciting as it unfolds in both past and present. So why don't you take us into a little bit of the strategy of The Whispering Woods, sir? Well, first I have to say, I did not know that your favorite war movie was The Thin Red Line, because that's one of my favorite movies. It's a really, really good movie if you've not seen it. It came out, I want to say, in night. It came out around the same time as Saving Private Ryan, so it got. In- I think so, like the same summer, which is so weird, because they're both great, but very different. So, so different. So, like, and, and people are completely complaining that they were like different and they're like oh Terrence Malick's movie is is so much inferior to Saving Private Ryan but I scratched my head at that and I was like no I mean yes and and, and no at the same time but they're different in terms of its focus and its thematic what what you're looking at in in the movies itself so if you've never seen the movie please please go ahead and see if it's on Netflix or whatnot or Amazon Prime or whatnot but yes the Battle of the Whispering Woods so uh, to again, I, I feel like as as like last week, it's like kind of like strip away all those fun character things that Emmett loves so much and get right into like the dirt, and we're all gonna get dirty and get it down into the mud again into the Battle of the Whispering Woods. So, yeah, I, I guess you know the first things first is that this is a total romp of a victory for Rob Stark and the Northmen, and I will try and get a little bit more into why this is such a huge victory for Rob, both tactically and strategically. And yeah, Tywin wins. Tywin wins a tactically and strategically insignificant battle in the previous chapter against an enemy who wasn't even trying to win in the first place. But Rob does more than win tactically against Tywin Lannister. But before we get to all of that, we have to get into the battle planning portion of the Whispering Wood. And of note, we start with Rob and Brynn consulting a map and picking a spot to ambush Jamie before even moving to the ambush site. You know, Rob is super smart to lean on Brynn Tully for his, pre- for his pre-battle planning. Brynn Tully is a native Riverlander and the most experienced practitioner of warfare in Rob's army, and that's really important. But it's not the most important and or vital thing. As much as I believed in previous years that Brynn was the one who was guiding Rob's victories, we see Rob as the one who's making the ultimate decision for the site selection for the ambush of Jamie's forces. And I read this in in the synopsis, but where Rob is telling is talking with Brynn and Tully, and he says, "We're going to ambush them. We're going to you're going to rate them here at this point in the map. A few hundred men, you'll fly Tully banners, and then we're going to you're going to fall back, and we will ambush Jamie's forces here." And it's really nice that we get. Rob citing Ned Stark as the one who taught his son and his sons, rather, to give them courses in orienteering. 
But Ned's block of instructions went beyond simple map reading, because as John says to Stannis in A Dance of Dragons, which is, quote, the map is not the land, my father often said. So too, Rob is not simply just reading a map here. It really reminds me of a maxim that I learned in my lean, violent days. The first reconnaissance is always, always a map reconnaissance. Well said, sir. Yeah, I love the little build up there when Rob and Brendan are, are just, you know, setting the trap for Jamie and, and using both his his personality traits and their own skills, their own unique set of skills, as you say. Brendan brings the local knowledge, but Rob is a genuine strategic prodigy, I think, in terms of being able to look at the map and immediately sense how it's going to piece together even before he has that local knowledge in mind. And that's 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 a great military mind at work for sure. We yeah, got his finger moving on the map and he says here, and then immediately we get like the cinematic rush to what he's talking about. Like we cut from him pointing to the map to Catalan's POV on the valley that he's talking about. Yeah. And we, we get that that beautiful passage that you, you read part of in your synopsis, but I just gotta do again because <laughs> it's so terrific. Here was a hush in the night, moonlight and shadows, a thick carpet of dead leaves underfoot, densely wooded ridges sloping gently down to the stream bed, the underbrush thinning as the ground fell away. Here was her son on his stallion, glancing back at her one last time. As you say, he still needs her approval and her to be on board <laughs> and lifting his sword in salute. That's just so great. Here was the call of Mage Mormont's Warhorn, a long, low blast that rolled down the valley from the east to tell them that the last of Jamie's riders have entered the trap. Using those badass Warhorns the same way as in Tyrion 8, when they drowned out the Lannister trumpets, which suddenly seemed so pale and pathetic <laughs> next to them. It's just such spine-tingling stuff. We understand the strategy. We get this other rush of imagery. The battle kicks off, and it just it just sticks in your mind. And again, it's the contrast with the Green Fork, which was expertly done, but was, as you say, a fairly linear series of events. Here's what happened, and then this happened, and then we're done. <laughs> and the whis- the Whispering Wood is just hopping and jumping through time to accomplish its ends. And those ends include not just setting up the strategy, although it does it in a very unique and exciting way, but it emphasizes how Catelyn, our POV, increasingly feels... The past, inside the present, inside the future. That eternal sunshine cycle thing that we were talking about earlier when she thinks, let him grow taller, she asks the gods. Let him know 16 and 20 and 50. Let him grow as tall as his father and hold his own son in his arms. Please, please, please. As she watched him, this tall young man with the new beard and the dire wolf prowling at his heels... All she could see was the babe they laid at her breast at River Run so long ago. <laughs> so she looks at Rob and she she sees his past self and his future self and all three of these are just colliding in the moment. And we've said before that Catelyn is such a rich character in part because of how her backstory is constantly informing her mindset in ways large and small. So an event through Catelyn's eyes is never just the event itself. You know, it's, it's, it's this cascade of memories and premonitions crowding in like pages in a flipbook. Like River Run brings her back to her childhood there and... The, the Knights of Summer in Renly's camp remind her, of course, of the false spring at Harrenhal before the rebellion took its toll on her generation. And, you know, Ned, of course, has a similar unstuck-in-time feel. Like, this reminded me very much of his flashback to Lyanna in his uh, ninth chapter in King's Landing as the rain's coming down. He's thinking about Robert's bastards. But his POV is fixated on one single event, Lyanna in her bed of blood. It's always coming back to that. His feelings are drawn to that like a magnet. Catelyn doesn't have that. Her like emotional net is cast wider, so to speak. It's more diffuse. So instead of drawing everything back to one primal scene with her, Martin just like skips like a stone across space time, and it's it's so beautiful. That early passage you were talking about, where Brandon Stark had bid her wait as well, and then Ned had lingered scarcely a fortnight with his new bride before he too had ridden off to war with with promises on his lips, and now it was for Rob that she waited. It's that same threefold structure of the here, here, here passage. And 
It's just so great. It sums up Catelyn's whole life, the way she's always waited and always done her duty and always assumed that would make everything okay. And now she's realizing, oh, maybe it won't. And she's talking about Rob like Ned is already dead. Like, let him be as tall as Ned. Let him have his children. Like, she senses at some level, oh, this is just like Brandon. She kind of feels at some level that she knows what's about to happen to her husband in King's Landing. So it's not just George summing up Kat's life. It's her actively sifting through the memories like Joel in Eternal Sunshine, trying to find meaning in how she and her loved ones got here. She's like, she's sensing the structure of her own story, her own tragic downfall and realizing that's what it is. And that just makes it all the sadder. And that's such a perfect perspective to have on a battle because the battle's life or death stakes, of course, prompt these kind of musings. That's, you have any classic war story always has philosophical musings down in the foxhole before the battle because as, as you face death, you want to think to yourself, wow, what was the point? What did it all mean? What's the, the thesis statement someone's going to glean from my life story? And Catelyn has even more time to think about this because she's not actually in the battle. Right. She has this semi-removed position, so that's what she's dwelling on. And, you know, the, the, the author shifts between her bittersweet thoughts and and the steadily rising suspense as it becomes clear that Rob is preparing an ambush for Jamie. And we, we thought we would kind of mirror that in the structure of this episode, that we're going back and forth between talking about the character stuff and the military stuff, not just to break up the flow, but because that's how the chapter works. And I just, I love that structure. It's so great. Like I said in the Tyrion chapter before, uh, what initially gravitated me towards Song of Ice and Fire was the kind of political and military things in the series. And I was like, I love this stuff. This is so great. But what brings me back over and over again is the character moments in the story. And Catelyn, as you say, time skipping through her memories, which is a beautiful way of putting it, by the way, as as you are want to do. That's really, really amazing because it goes even farther back than Ned and Rob and Brandon. It goes back to her father, Hoster, where she's standing and waiting atop the parapets of River Run, waiting for waiting for her fa- waiting for her father to come back from his various missions and journeys across across Westeros, as we'll discuss towards the end of this podcast as well. But to kind of get back into the battle stuff, back into the mud with me, to understand the site selection for the ambush, we need to infer why this particular spot for the ambush was chosen. So first, the ambush site is a valley floor with wooded hills surrounding it. And why is this important? Well, it gives Rob and his Northmen and the Riverland and his Riverlander allies an advantage of coming down the hill against Jamie's army below. And this is especially important for Rob's all cavalry force. Their speed will be vital against Jamie's force. And in addition, it is a wooded ridges around this stream bed below. So it gives Rob the ability to conceal his army, the size of his army, and the disposition of his forces in the battle to come. And let's talk a little bit about that valley itself. As some of you know, I have a little bit of experience in these things. A valley is doctrinally defined as a stretched out groove in the land, usually formed by streams or rivers. Why is this important? Well, it's important because as it's noted in this chapter, Jamie's army is caught in a stream when Rob sounds the attack. Water restricts Lancer cavalry mobility, mitigating Jamie's cavalry from riding effectively against Rob's army. In effect, it makes the Lannister army a force of very tall infantrymen. And the stream also works to defuse the Lannister army so that they can't fight in mass. Rob and his factions then can defeat the Lannister army incrementally. People often talk about force multipliers as things like tactics, technology, personnel that multiplies the effect of friendly forces on the battlefield. And those are things that are definitely referenced in this chapter here. But terrain is another force multiplier that often is fades into the background a little bit. And that's absolutely essential for Rob's plan to work against Jamie. They are using the terrain to constrain Jamie's army, to cut them off from each other, and to allow for Rob to conduct this masterful ambush against Jamie's forces in the stream bed below the valley. 
That, that's a great point and that you can see that this is like Rob becoming the leader of not just the North, but the Riverlands, that he's using the geography against the enemy and proving that, you know, he understands this area with the Blackfish's help better than Jamie does. And it, Martin comes again, comes back again and again to the, the natural world's relationship to this, as we're going to see in the Battle of Ice with Stannis, as we talked about it in our, our Night Lamp episode, available for uh, for patrons $5 and above a month over on patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIIF. And yeah, there's all these aspects that go into you know, which army wins the battle. And it's not just about numbers and pushing numbers at each other until we see who has the bigger number, that there's all these aspects that can allow an army like Rob's, which is considerably smaller than Jamie's, to lure him out, destroy this part of his army, and then, as we'll get into with Tyrion 9, attack the rest of the battle of the camps. And another one of those elements that really stands out in, on reread is Rob himself as a personal command presence. Like, he's already being called the Young Wolf at this point. And he knows he has to be seen by the men before battle to give them confidence. And not just that, but he, he moves down the line so assuredly and he's tailoring his approach to each man. Like, I know it's like, you know, a joke will work with this one. Just a straight up pat in the back is going to be what this guy needs. And those, those are all, you know, good signs. And and then there's that dire wolf, the, the key part of Rob's political image. You have, you know, Grey Wind throwing his head back and howling when the last of the Lannisters have arrived. And this is not just cool for the reader, although it is. It's a huge part of Rob's reputation. And now he, he gathers men around him and makes his enemies afraid. Like, Tyrion will later uh, scorn the rumors of Rob using sorcery at the Battle of Oxcross. He's got this great line about, like, sorcery is, like, the, the flavor that idiots use to hide the flavor of their incompetence. Like, they spoon <laughs> sorcery over their own mistakes. And it, it's just terrific. And the stories that Lancel passes on about Rob at Oxcross... Like these stories Jared Frey tells about the Red Wedding in the Dance with Dragons at White Harbor are just completely absurd. Like, you know, where they all turn into wargs and they feasted on the flesh of the fallen. But there is a nugget of truth to it, because as, as George has said, you know, all the Starks are wargs at some level. So Rob and Grey Wind have a, this budding connection between warg and his wolf. And that bond is important because it's such a killer political image. Like, given that the dire wolf is House Stark's sigil... Having Grey Wind at his side is such a great metaphor for Rob coming into his own as the head of the family. He is becoming the leader of the wolf pack with, with Ned injured and, and thrown in jail and soon to be executed. And this coming together is mirrored in his army, who through Rob are rediscovering their wolfish selves. This is their northern identity that's been challenged by the south. And in the image of Rob and following Rob, they're, they're finding it again. And that's why you have that great part where Catelyn's listening to the battle and she hears the wolf howls and snarls everywhere. And she's like, wait, there's only one, right? We only bought Grey Wind? And part, of course, that's just the fog of war, but it also gets across that the soldiers themselves are kind of wolves now. They're, they're so into House Stark and so behind Rob that they're one pack. They're the Winter Wolves reborn. It's not just that Grey Wind himself fights with such ferocity and fearlessness. It's that the Northmen following him and Rob into battle are inspired to do the same. And it, it's not only them. Rob's younger siblings are repeatedly inspired by the stories and his courage and skill on the battlefield, and I'm going to be as brave as Rob, and I can do it just like he does, <laughs> and... Yeah, that really hurts the heart on reread. It, it really does kind of hurt the heart, but I do love the fact that Catelyn is 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 being afraid of the wolves at the same time, as well as finding some music in it. Contrast this to what Catelyn was feeling back in her second chapter, or her third chapter rather, from A Game of Thrones, where she's hearing the howling of the wolves outside of her window in Winterfell, and she's like, "Make them stop! Make them stop!" And she's so bereft and so you know, kind of just pulled under by the weight of grief at having Bran being tossed from the window. But now she's finding some strength and some music in the direwolves howling. And I think that's such a wonderful, probably intentional contrast that George wants to paint between these two Catelyn chapters here. So getting into the battle itself, let's quickly outline the Stark and Lannister orders of battle. 
The Starks, well, we know that they're a all-cavalry force, which is important to seize the initiative and use mobility to overcome numerical disadvantages. And these are numbers, and these are approximations, and these are not quite 100% accurate, I think, but they're close enough. So we know that the Northmen bring 3,000 armored lances, as Maester Lewin says, and 300 to 400 knights, and Maester Lewin says this back in Brand 6. Catelyn says that nine-tenths of the northern horse is with them, so let's call it 2,700 armored lances and 270 to 360 northern knights. Then we have the fray knights and lancers. It's really unclear how many there are, but it estimated probably around 1,500 folks. Then we have the Malisters and other Riverlanders that have joined up from Edmure's army. That's about 1,000 or so. And the total Stark Riverlander host that's about to engage in the battle is 6,000 horsemen per Catelyn's accounting of it, saying something effective. Would 10 be enough? Would 30 be enough people to protect Rob? Would 6,000 be enough? So we have to assume that 6,000 is the actual number that is the, the northern host. The Lannister host is a little bit different in that we have Jamie's army, which is besieging River Run. It's a mix of infantry and cavalry. We have 12,000 infantrymen, as Brennan Tully says, in three separate camps around River Run. And then we have 2,000 to 3,000 cavalry, which are all led by Jamie Lannister, and they're all coming straight for Rob. Though they don't know it, and it's going to be great. So now let's transition from those numbers as well, because people love the numbers. I get it. I love numbers too, battle numbers especially, and talk about the battle plan itself. So... To do this, I figured I would use, again, getting my warship on, letting my inner freak flag fly, talking about it in terms of what is an actual operations order in an actual battle and an actual operation. Rob Stark's army conducts an ambush no later than the waxing crescent phase of the moon in order to destroy Jamie Lannister's cavalry force and take Jamie Lannister prisoner. Execution phase, five-phase operation. Phase one, shaping operation one. The Blackfish and a force of Riverlanders flies Tully Banners and conducts a raid against Jamie's army besieging River Run. Phase 2, shaping Operation 2. Brynden and the Riverlanders fall back to a predetermined location as Jamie pursues. Phase 3, shaping Operation 3. Once Jamie's army is fully within the valley itself, Mage Mormont closes the entry point. Phase 4, decisive Operation 1. Once the valley entry point is closed, horn sound, which I love, by the way, because you can imagine the cacophony of horns and trumpets that are sounding all around Jamie's army, which is just, just great. And archers deployed atop the trees engage Jamie's army with ranged weapons. Phase 5, Decisive Operation 2. Once arrow volleys are complete, Rob's cavalry force attacks Jamie's cavalry from four directions. Great John from the north, Frey's and Malisters from the east and west, and Rob from the south. End state, Jamie's cavalry is destroyed, Jamie is taken prisoner, minimal casualties suffered by Stark and Riverlander hosts. So that is essentially the all the preparation and all the numbers for the battle itself. And now we can actually talk about the Battle of the Whispering Woods. Sorry, I don't mean to sound excited. We have to be very serious about this. We have to talk about the Battle of the Whispering Wood. So basically, Rob's plan works really, really, really well. And it's interesting because Brendan raids, Jamie takes the bait, chases the Riverlanders back to the ambush spot. Once the Lannister army is inside the zone of engagement, Mage Mormont closes the trap, horns sound, arrows fly, Rob's cavalry, and I'll use a doctrinal term here, wrecks the fucking shit out of the Lannister cavalry. Jamie is then taken prisoner, but not before killing three important men, Torin Eddard Karstark and Darren Hornwood. And man, so, so satisfying to actually get this battle and get the Lannister comeuppance after what has felt like in this book, 63 chapters-ish of the Lannisters being ascendant. Well, now they are not ascendant so much anymore. Well said, sir. Yeah, Theon calls it a glorious victory. And for all that he's an obnoxious prick per usual in this book, it's hard to disagree with him. I mean, George has talked about wanting to show both sides of war, why people fight and why they shouldn't. 
And you can really see both at the Whispering Wood, I think. On the one hand, you can easily get swept up in the excitement of Rob's victory. Especially because, yeah, it's over Jamie. And we last saw him killing Jory. And his it's his arrogance and recklessness that screws him over. So when he gets dragged up the hill and thrown down in front of Catelyn, there is a real catharsis to that. The first time through, go, yeah, yeah. Got him. Got him. It's great. And there's, there's, of course, as we've been saying, so much stirring imagery and so much catharsis to this big suspenseful buildup. And on the other hand, you get that jarring moment right after the battle when Rob returns on a different horse. How did What happened to his first horse? How did they get that horse? No one knows. I doubt if even he knows. It was it was just chaos. And he's covered in the blood of the young man who died to save him. And he's he's just so shaken by having had to watch that. He watched those other young men die so he didn't get hurt. And as as you mentioned, those the, their names, Torn and Edward Karstark, Darren Hornwood, we'll get into what the deaths of those young men mean in a little bit, but they have important consequences. And that, that gets at the chaos and instability of the battlefield, the way huge political ramifications can be created in just an instant. And you, you get the death of young men in their prime, as will befall Rob, of course. And that just stands out in just such contrast to the glory and excitement of it. We've been just bringing up our, our favorite little passages in this chapter over and over again. But I think there's, there's one more beautifully written section that you already did in the synopsis. I'm going to have to once more repeat you because it's too good because it just sums up both sides of the coin so perfectly. Do when it. She's describing, when she's describing the umber spearmen coming down the other hill. They were in a long line, an endless line. And as they burst from the wood, there was an instant, the smallest part of a heartbeat. When all Catalan saw was the moonlight on the points of their lances, as if a thousand will-o'-wisps were coming down the ridge, wreathed in silver flame. Then she blinked, and they were only men, rushing down to kill or die. Oh, that's so good, because the imagery is just so overwhelmingly strong there. For, like, for just a moment, it's as if the beauty of the natural world, emphasized throughout this chapter, has transferred to the world of men. Suddenly we feel like like angels and gods and part of this part of this world, this world of endless nature cycles, and we're not just, you know, doomed to die. And this is more than writing a battle scene poetically. This is George arguing that the battle itself is poetry. <laughs> like it's art. It's an art in motion. It's a martial art, if you will. And then Catelyn experiences that and it, it stops her heart for a moment. And then she blinks and she realizes, oh yeah, they're just mortal. We're mortal <laughs> too. Some some of them are gonna get mercy, and some of them, like Ned like Rob, like Darren Hornwood and the Car Starks, and ultimately like her, will not. Yeah, that's extremely powerful stuff. Like Martin has talked about it numerous times, he wants to portray both sides of war. He wants to portray the glory of it and the young men fighting in battle, the rousing songs they sing, how stirring of a moment it is when Catelyn sees the Karstark men coming down the hill and – God, I just have to read it for the third time. A thousand will-o'-wisps were coming down the ridge wreathed in, wreathed in silver flame. That's really powerful imagery and it helps to emphasize the one aspect of war. But because Martin is a good enough writer not to overemphasize one aspect, he has to contrast this with the blood that is being spilt there. As she says – Men were rushing down to kill or to die, and that's powerful as well. And a lot of these guys are not going to come back, and not just that they're not going to come back in this battle, but I don't think any of these guys are going to come back from the ultimately from the War of the Five Kings. And that's something that we should always keep in mind as we're going through this reread podcast, that as glorious as Rob's victories are in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings, fewer than... I don't even know. So, I mean, great John Umber, is that the only guy here that's actually going to live through this experience? I, I guess. Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover make it out because yeah. they get sent into the neck before the Red Wedding, but it's just a handful. And, and yeah, you're right. That always undercuts the glory and it, it provides that real sadness and that's, that fits Catelyn's POV because that's, you know, like she says at Renly's camp, because it will not last. Hmm. They are the nights of summer and winter is coming. Mm-hmm. 
So that, I think, about wraps us up for the, the depth portion of this episode. Moving into the foreshadowing and groundwork, we were talking about the deaths of Darren Hornwood and the Karstark boys. And we, we already see the hints in this chapter where that's going when, you know, Lord Karstark's furious anger about Jamie and his desire to kill Jamie for that is brought up. Because that is just going to pay off in the worst possible way come a storm of swords when he inflicts his revenge on the Lannister squires. And it's just so hideous. And it's this devastating scene with the rain coming down and Rob is just horrified. The Hornwoods, it's, it's not quite as like dramatic and Shakespearean. But yeah, as you said, the fact that both father and son die over the course of the Green Fork and the Whispering Wood leaves a significant power vacuum in book two when you have all these other houses in the north trying to claim their lands and uh, get in on the poor widow Danella Hornwood who is, is exercising control over the land at the moment. So again, it's those, those ripple effects. Like, yeah, Catelyn can say, well, that's horrible, but in the moment you were the important one, Rob, and we have to keep you going. And she's not wrong in the short term, but politically there are just as long-term effects to a Darren Hornwood dying or a Torn and Edward Karstark dying as a Rob Stark. Yeah, I think when we get into A Clash of Kings, we're going to see those really bad payoffs occurring in the North. And that's something I'm really excited to get into in A Clash of Kings because I feel like the brand chapters are a bit underloved in the fandom come Clash. I agree completely. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting political stuff early on. That's, that's fun to sink our teeth into. Yeah. So getting a little bit into the history portion of this, we do get some – you do wonder whether it's intentional or unintentional groundwork for what's known popularly in the fandom as the Southern Ambitions Theory. Because Catelyn notes that her father, Hoster Tully, spent a lot of time away from River Runner youth, where she thinks, quote, Watch me, little cat, her father would always tell her when he rode off to court, or fair, or battle. Now, of course, Lord's riding off to war, or court, or fair, or battle is not, you know, unimaginable or not something that's unheard of among among the nobles in Westeros. But it's intriguing how often Hoster Tully was gone from River Run itself. We do know that Hoster Tully was off visiting places like Casterly Rock, potentially being off to visit the Vale, maybe off at Winterfell as well, maybe off at Storm's End too. These places were important for him to craft this marriage alliance. And in order to do that, he had to be physically in these locations, meeting with the various lords, whether it's Tywin Lannister, whether it's John Arryn, whether it's Rickard Stark, whether it's Stephen Baratheon. And the reason why he likely had to be there in person was that, you know, you have a certain character in the form of Varys the Spider, who has the ability to intercept letters and could then inform Aerys Targaryen of this massive conspiracy that's being undertaken to overthrow him and his sons from their rule in King's Landing. And you can't always trust the maesters either, so maybe certain things are, are better done in person and not, not trusted to any letters that might be copied and sent on to someone else once the maester's out of your sight. Yeah, obviously, as you say, this is part of a lord's duty to go around and just check in on things and show a public presence at your vassals and various public events, and especially in the Riverlands, because River Run is unusually decentralized mm -hmm. for being a capital of a region, so all the more reason for Hoster to go out physically to his far-flung lands and make sure the frays are, are, aren't up to no good, make sure the... the <laughs> Brackens and the Blackwoods are keeping the peace and so forth. On the other hand, Hoster, we know, is a very kind of engaged and, and canny and savvy politician from what Catelyn says about him. So I think it's entirely possible that Hoster was like the hype man for the South Run Ambitions <laughs> Coalition. Like he was the one because the Riverlands are in the middle of Westeros. It kind of makes sense for him to be the one to unite the, the web and be the one to go to each castle and talk to each person in turn. That, that, that makes a certain degree of sense to me. Uh, speaking of being in the hype man position, we see someone in the present day doing that in this chapter, namely Theon. You can see him, him setting himself up as like Rob's, almost like Rob's herald or just like Rob's wingman here. Like he's, he's going to be the go around and one to go around in front of Rob and tell Rob stories and, and pump up the legend of Rob Stark. 
And that's an interesting thing you see Theon doing because in part that's just Theon's personality, but it's also a smart political move because every young hotshot lord needs that guy. Mm-hmm. You need someone next to you who's going to talk up your strengths and, and, and point you out to everybody. And it's also – it's kind of heartwarming because it's a good like sibling relationship in a feudal context. Like if you know you have a younger brother, which Theon is not, but he's, he's kind of functioning like one here. He, he's not going to be the heir to the castle, but he, that's, he can be, that can be his role in the coalition. He's talking you up at every turn. And we have not seen such a glorious victory since the Field of Fire. Everyone give it up for Rob. <laughs> that, that's Theon's kind of job. It's the job that like Stannis was never able to do for Robert really, even though if, if he had a personality transplant, he might have been able to. But it's interesting in terms of groundwork because Theon will do this again in Catelyn's next chapter. She comes upon him regaling everyone with the story of the Battle of the Camps. And he will try to do it in book two when he goes back to talk to Balin. When he tries to be Rob's hype, hype man on the Iron Islands. And it fails miserably. Yeah. it It's really sad looking back at the Battle of the Whispering Wood and Theon's conduct here. Then the Battle of the Camps thereafter. Knowing that Theon is going to be the guy that's ultimately going to betray Rob Stark. It makes that tragedy very poignant in retrospect looking back at it. And it's... It's sad. I mean, you you feel bad for Theon in so many ways in A Clash of Kings. Not every way, because he is kind of a total piece of shit in various points in A Clash of Kings. And even here in A Game of Thrones too, where everyone's being like, Theon, just shut the fuck up. Just literally just stop talking. Just for once in your entire life, just don't don't talk. Like, shut your mouth. But it's it's interesting that we have Theon here being that younger brother role. And I think it's interesting too. You can almost see him as kind of, you know, the Oliver Frey role where he's two years old, or he's five years, I guess, technically older than Rob Stark, but he's seemingly at a parody of uh, maturity, emotional maturity than Rob. Or even less maturity than Rob to some extent. Like you don't see Rob talking about his victories this way. Uh, very much the contrast in the show is we're going to get to a little bit. And yeah, that, that that does fit Theon's character perfectly. And it's, it's I mean, he, he has to be set up to be arrogant and smug so it can, that, that can just get shattered in Clash of Kings. Right. Like that's the, that's the structure George is going for, I think. Absolutely. So a little bit more R plus L equals J groundwork we have here. We have Catelyn talking about birthing Rob Stark and she calls it birthing him in, quote, blood and pain, which we can pretty – easily tie into Ned's memories of the Tower of Joy and Lyanna's Bed of Blood. Now, it's very small, but it does feel like that's something that Martin inserted specifically into this chapter to be like, hey, you remember that vision that Ned has back in Game of Thrones at her 10? Well, I think we can safely conclude that Lyanna had just given birth essentially when when Ned meets up with her there. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's Martin's way of of filling in the unanswered question about the Tower of Joy by by showing you a situation which it produced a baby. So wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. Maybe the other situation did too. And it's just great because you get this this real sadness with which Ned and Catelyn's marriage starts where Ned wasn't there for the birth of his own son. He was bir- there for the birth of his sister's son or shortly thereafter. And, and it lost Lyanna in the process. So you, you get this this wall built up between Ned and Catelyn right away. Where she has this, you know, loyalty to Rob, and she's so worried about Rob because he was he was her first and came during the war, and he was so small. And but Ned has all these these parallel concerns about John, a child not of her body. So that's just you get that really gets at the the difficult emotional turmoil that these characters had to deal with. And of course, that's only going to get worse when Rob Stark dies <laughs> in a storm of swords right in front of Catelyn. And I think as well as R plus L equals J groundwork, I think we get. Uh, some groundwork pointing to Rob's death here when he, he puts on his visor and like a Catelyn can only see black inside because he's he's literally going to lose his head after the Red Wedding. It's going to be cut off and there will only, only be black emptiness there. And she's got that poignant line, will 30 be enough? Will 6,000 be enough? 
Nope. I'm so sorry, Mom. No, they will not. Even having a large army around him will not protect Rob, as he assumes it will at the Red Wedding. And it's, it's so hard to like come back to this chapter, like I said, and realize that all of those 6,000 men, or 98% of them, are going to be dead by the end of A Storm of Swords. And yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that we have Rob... Stark being described as a visor, as only blackness within Rob's visor. It does remind me a little bit of Bran's vision, where he sees a stone giant, he opens the visor, and there's only black blood that flows out of the visor itself. I'm not sure if that's an allusion specifically to Rob Stark, or whether it's Gregor Clegane, as others have pointed out, or have speculated about. But I do think that it doesn't symbolize anything good. I think that's important <laughs> that Martin wants to ensure that when there's black inside of someone's visor, it's it's bad. It's it's very, very bad. Avoid that. Yeah, whenever he brings up black blood also, that's it's never in a good context. It's always to do with some like horrible magic or zombie zombification. So yeah, these these are definitely uh these are definitely warning signs. And part of what makes Catelyn interesting is that she picks up subliminally on them at some level. Like she's you know, she's saying let Rob grow older, let him grow have a child in his arms, please, please, because she knows at some level it's not gonna happen. Yeah, it's it's so harsh, man. It's so harsh, this this book at that point. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork, moving on to our uh, discussion section of the episode. So as, as we've been saying, The Whispering Wood is a clear victory for Rob Stark, helping cement his reputation as a military prodigy, especially given that his opposite number, Jamie, is so well known. He gets to say, if I may paraphrase Euron from the show, <laughs> I'm the man who defeated Jamie Lannister. That's what Rob gets to say now. But... In the wake of the tactical Lannister victory at the Green Fork last week, which, as you pointed out so well, turned out to be a strategic disaster, we should ask ourselves, how much of a victory is this? Catelyn 10 ends rather abruptly on Rob saying Riverrun still awaits them. The equivalent scene in season one of Game of Thrones gives the young wolf a very somber speech to his men after the victory. You know, one victory does not make us conquerors. We haven't freed my father. We haven't liberated the North from the people who want to keep us down. This war has just begun. So he's outlining how they haven't actually met their political goals. And indeed, as, as re-readers slash re-watchers, we know many of them are never going to be met. So what do you think, Jeff? Should we be cheering during the Whispering Wood or is there a larger point we're missing? I, I think it's a great question that you ask. And I think, you know, I, I talked about how there's such things as shaping and decisive operations in terms of battle planning. And I think ultimately the Battle of the Whispering Wood works as a shaping operation for the true decisive operation, and that is the relief of River Run from Lannister's Siege. But that's really not to take anything away from Rob's victory because the accomplishments here are immense. You know, we have the Lannister cavalry forces completely destroyed, and thus the Lannisters who are besieging River Run have no eyes and no cavalry force to match Rob's large and now battle-tested cavalry force. And then we have several Westermen lords and knights who are taken prisoner, so they can be potentially ransomed back for money to fund Rob's war cause, or they could be held prisoners to their family's good behavior. Now, of course, this doesn't happen because the Westermen are more afraid of Tywin Lannister than of what Rob will do to their kin, and that's really, really saying something in my opinion. I mean, consider how not the norm this is with the example of, say, the Red Wines from A Clash of Kings. As we know, the Red Wines are there for the hand's tourney from, from Sansa's second chapter in A Game of Thrones, and they end up being caught up in the chaos that's unfolding from Robert Baratheon's death and Ned Stark's arrest, and the Red Wines are then being held captive by Cersei Lannister thereafter. So in Clash, in Tyrion's fourth chapter, the quote is, quote, 
all the Tyrell Bannermen but for the red wines, and you have me to thank for that. So long as I hold those poxy twins of his, Lord Paxter will squat on the arbor and count himself fortunate to be out of it. Interesting and kind of fucked up and twisted that that these Westerman lords and knights are willing to sacrifice their sons, their fathers, their cousins, their uncles, people that they're close to, their family and kin, rather than put their own asses on the line and face Tywin Lannister's wrath. That's um, that's really saying something, and I'm not sure it's particularly positive towards Tywin Lannister. Is there anything positive to say about Tywin Lannister? No, but but of course not. So, but most importantly, the most important aspect of this battle is that Jamie Lannister is taken prisoner and is effectively sidelined from the War of the Five Kings, really only participating in the second siege of River Run some two years after this event. And this was exactly what Catelyn had counseled Rob to seek in terms of his victory conditions with the Lannisters back in Catelyn Eight, where the quote is, "Our best hope." Our only true hope is that you could defeat the foe in the field. If you should chance to take Lord Tywin and the Kingslayer captive, why then a trade might very well be possible. So the stated pre-battle objective has been achieved, but is it ultimately going to help the Stark cause? No. The problem isn't that Catelyn or Rob miscalculates. Catelyn and Rob are both operating under common Westerosi norms, and the problem is that there's a psychopath on the Iron Throne who won't give a shit about the political ramifications of killing Ned when trading him, Sansa, and Arya for Jaime would net uh, basically an advantage for the Lannisters and what Tywin Lannister actually wants. But even worse for hashtag Team Stark, in the next Tyrion chapter, Tywin is going to give Jaime up for dead and is going to embark on the most brutal chevachet imaginable against the Riverlands with the idea that they can do whatever the fuck they want because they think that Jaime is just going to die. That doesn't, though, mean that Rob's victory at the Whispering Wood is a failure in the short term. Jamie's defeat will ensure that two-thirds of the Lannister armies surrounding Riverrun will be destroyed, and this will open up the Westerlands to Rob's vengeance campaign in A Clash of Kings and his very near attempt to lure Tywin into the West in order to destroy his army and to allow Stannis to take King's Landing. But all of these things are leading towards the tragedy that is the cause of House Stark in the first three books, where it ends up that Tywin does not come into the West to defeat Rob Stark after Edmure defeats the Lannisters in battle at the Stone Mill, and this ends up leading to the ultimate demise. This contributes to the ultimate demise of House Stark. The point you made about the Westerlands being opened up to Rob's campaign is really important because of how thorny the politics and the timing get when Rob tries to make peace in book two. He offers a deal to the Lannisters in Catelyn's first chapter in A Clash of Kings, but as he tells Catelyn, he knows he's going to have to force the Lannisters to the table. And we know Rob is right about that because we have Tyrion's POV. And his plan is to pretend to be negotiating in good faith, while waiting for his cousin Stafford to prepare a second Lannister army so he and Tywin can crush the young wolf between them. For good measure, Tyrion breaks custom regarding envoys so he can free Jaime without trading Sansa, a blatant sign that Rob needs sticks as well as carrots to force the Lannisters to negotiate in good faith. And he has that great line in Catelyn's first chapter in A Clash of Kings at the end of his proposal of the peace deal, and he says if, if she holds to those terms, that's fine, but if not, I'll give her another whispering <laughs> wood. And that's, that's not only a wonderful line in and of itself, but it's a strong sign that Rob understands how war is an extension of politics, that you use war not just because war is great, but because you can accomplish your political means that way. And it's the same deal as understanding that capturing Jamie is your goal in this battle, not defeating every single one of his soldiers. And Rob follows it up. He invades the Westerlands in an effort to hit Tywin's vassals where it hurts, to force them to come back to fight him, to shatter Stafford's fledgling host, removing it as a knife to his back that the Lannisters can use as an excuse to negotiate dishonestly, and to ultimately force the Lannisters to sue for peace. And as you say, if the dominoes didn't fall perfectly at the fords and the Blackwater to doom him, it might have worked. So it's not as simple as 
Rob rejecting peace because he wants to keep his crown or because he's he's just too into his military prodigy role. It's because he understands that when dealing with an opponent like the Lannisters, you have to use force strategically to even get them to consider peace, let alone actually creating a deal. And and as you were saying, Catelyn is working within established norms when when they assume that they're not the Lancers aren't just going to execute Ned just because. <laughs> but no, no one saw that coming because it doesn't make sense for them to do. So that's not Rob and Catelyn being naive or thinking that everyone will be honorable like them, the Starks. That's just them assuming the Lannisters will behave as as rational political actors. And it turns out they don't. On the other hand, beyond the logistics, you do have larger themes about how Martin tends to address battles and war in the series. It it definitely is telling that the first two big battles in the story turn to ashes in the winner's mouth. You know, Tywin wins the Green Fork, but loses the larger strategy. Rob wins at the Whispering Wood and again at the camps, proving more masterful at the strategy, but he loses his father anyway to Joffrey's malicious whims and, of course, Littlefinger probably manipulating things behind the scenes. So in the same way that Robert's revenge quest against Danny didn't satisfy him and indeed gave rise to the invasion problem it was supposed to solve, I think you can see George demonstrating here that while the battle scenes can be rousing and beautiful and great fun to analyze, as, as we're doing here... That war is not actually bringing Rob closer to his heart's desire, and that even as he can prove to be a, actually a more canny commander than Tywin, chance is always going to play a role, as with Joffrey deciding to take Ned's head. Yeah, as we used to say in the infantry, Murphy is one bad motherfucker, you know. <laughs> Succinctly put, sir. Well done. Yeah. So... I hope you guys have enjoyed that. Emmett, your thoughts are as always beautiful and wonderful. I really appreciate that. And I, uh, I, I'm i really proud of you, man. Like you're really like catching on with all this military and war stuff. Like it's it's good. It's it's good to see you here with me. Like I I, I feel like I feel like you're my, my Padawan or my Sith apprentice, whatever the one you whatever side you were. I was about to say, yeah. I don't think we're I don't think the Jedi are for us, Jeff. <laughs> Black and red is more my color scheme, so I think we're gonna have to go full Sith Lord. But yeah, I, I try to keep up with this stuff and it's it's really enjoyable to both focus on our individual elements and see how they work together and that's one of the really great joys i think of, of doing this podcast with you sir and this this i think was a perfect example of it so hope you guys enjoy listening to it as much as we did recording absolutely so as always thank you so much for listening to us as always please rate and review us on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud podbean anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts i was actually reviewing some of the apple podcast reviews today and i really appreciated all the kind words they were nice pick-me-ups for a day that was um interesting on social media let's just go with that interesting on social media speaking of social media you can find us at not a cast asoiaf if you feel like yelling at jeff and telling him he's a war criminal or some such <laughs> shoot us an email at not a cast asoiaf at gmail.com and you can find me at poor quentin tell the people where they can yell at you jeff oh uh, yes you can find me at poor quentin no you can find me at brendan p fish on twitter brendan p fish on reddit and my website is wars and politics and just so we did reference this earlier as well, but we do have a Patreon out there if you'd like to check out our bonus episodes, get early access to our episodes, get show notes, as well as our Game of Thrones analysis and reviews. So our next one, if you guys are listening to this episode on Monday, the 21st of May, is going to be coming your guys' way on Tuesday, and that is going to be the final episode of game of thrones if you like to get early access to that episode itself before it becomes public on wednesday check us out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast asoiaf also join us next week for our, our next episode in the regular chapter by chapter not a cast that is going to be covering a game of thrones daenerys 8 where the shadows come to dance my lord this is the miriam Azdur blood magic chapter and just like whispering wood this is one of my absolute favorite parts of the story i have so much to say it's, it's just just flawless so 
Get ready for a long one. Oh man, I can't wait. I'm just gonna hand the microphone to you for the entire time. And I'll just I'll do my synopsis as I do, and then I'll be like, Emmett, what do you think? And then I'm gonna go get a snack. I'm gonna go get a drink. <laughs> go kiss your kids. Right. Do a little grilling. Right. Yes. And then I'll like clean my entire house. Go to work the next day, and then I'll come back, and I'll be like, and thank you so much for listening to the Dodcast podcast. So no, it's gonna be so much fun. I really uh, I've, I've reread that chapter a few times this week, and I'm very excited to get into it. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Thank you for your awesome reviews and we will see you guys next week.